to Law Enforcement Today, the podcast. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. I'm a radio broadcaster and also retired Baltimore police sergeant. In every Law Enforcement Today podcast, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about issues that affect law enforcement officers, both active and retired, their families, friends, and supporters. We'll also be discussing incidents in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Be sure to check out our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and please take the time to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today. In the studio with Robert Greenberg. How are you today, Jay? Good. You know, it's a, a wonderful day down here in South Florida, and uh, summer, newly in the summer, and everybody thinks that all my friends up in Baltimore go, oh my God, how can you handle the heat down there in the summertime? And I remind them, do you remember what it's like being in Baltimore downtown in the summer? Like on a traffic scene or fire scene, the heat, the humidity? Well, the buildings block everything in for you. And it's not that bad here. All that breeze helps. Yeah, it's hot. It's humid for a little while, but then we go to AC, right? Yeah, but we're also 20 years older, Jay. So, you know. Oy. Um, you're telling me it got aches everywhere. We've got a special guest on the phone calling. We're not going to say where because this guy, I had the pleasure of meeting a couple of weeks ago when he's down visiting South Florida, visiting family. You and I and this gentleman went out to dinner. Uh, he's a retired police officer, had a great time hanging out. It was wonderful. But for reasons which you will understand, uh, he, he doesn't want to give his name. And that's cool. I understand that. He doesn't want to identify what department he came from. We're just going to call him Mike. Mike, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm glad you're taking the time to talk to us. I know that Robert has been asking you to do this for a while. And I, and I know it's not easy to talk about these things. Uh, we talked about quite a bit that one night we got together. It's not easy, so I applaud you for uh, coming on the show. Again, we don't want to say your name. We don't want to identify what agency you're from. You're retired from a major urban law enforcement agency in the United States. How's that? Okay. Do you want to tell people what happened? You, you want them getting hurt, badly hurt. Yes. I responded to, uh, I volunteered to assist on a call where a guy drove his car into a retention pond. He crashed his car and it sank. Uh, you know, I got there and it's a very bad neighborhood. So a large crowd had gathered to watch and, um, I was taking all my stuff off to get in the water. All I saw was the very, very skim top of the roof. I saw the driver swimming toward the shore, and I was taking my stuff off to get in the water, make sure there was no one else in the car. Someone in the crowd told me that no one, there was no one else in the car, so I put all my stuff on. And now this is a simple one-car crash. It's really not much paperwork. It wasn't even my call. I wasn't even responsible for the paperwork. You just first one uh, on the scene. Yeah, just set it up, make sure everybody's safe, and. I walked up to the driver, and then I, I lightly touched him on his shoulder. I said, hey, man, you okay? And he looked at me, and he was gibberish. Uh, he could only speak to me in gibberish. And so I, I called rescue, and I said, he must have hit his head, you know, something. I was like, can you send rescue out to take a look at this guy? And I kept telling him, you know, go ahead and sit down before you fall down and pass out and hit your head again, you know have a seat and he couldn't speak to me but I could tell he didn't want to 
that went on for probably 30 seconds to a minute or so. My memory isn't 100%. And all of a sudden, he looked at me, and the lights came on. Like, in his eyes, you could tell someone was home now. And he said, I'm leaving. And in my state, leaving the scene of a crash without making the report is a violation of state statute. So I told him, no, you're not leaving. And he went to leave. I went to cuff him on his right wrist. He spun away from me in a, in a bladed stance. So that, to me, signaled that we were going to fight. Mm-hmm. And where I came from, it was it was running and gunning all night long. It, it, we had to fight everybody. We it was bad guys with AKs. It was it was just a, it was a it was a war. And that's the um, thing that people don't see. They, they don't understand that happens in many many parts of American cities. That people joke about Chirac, you know, Chicago or Iraq. It's uh-huh. like that in a lot of American cities. In it is. certain areas, there's these pockets of extreme violence mm-hmm. that's difficult to comprehend for people who don't know what we're talking about. And it's even harder to explain to someone who has never been there what it's like. Extremely difficult. Extremely right. and, and and Mike doing a great job. Uh keep up the good work as far as articulating what's going on. Wanted to touch base with you as far as the crowd. Uh, can you explain that what was going on with the crowd and uh, and uh, obviously myself and uh, Jay have been in those types of situations. I'm sure as the situation uh, spread throughout the neighborhood, more yeah. people more people showed up than yeah. There was there was about 300 people there, and um, you know they hate the police with a passion and. You know, there's a big racial divide there. I'm a white guy, and now I am taking action against a black guy. They're not happy about it. And at this point, when he bladed off with me, I had took out my baton, my ass baton, which is nothing more, you know, than a metal pipe that fits into a bigger metal pipe that fits into a bigger metal pipe. And then they snap out. So, you know, exactly as trained, down to 45. Well, first, he went to leave again. I grabbed a hold of him again. He spun around, and this time, he, the expression on his face was, we're going to fight right now. You know, he was already bladed off, and then he had that facial expression. So, when you say bladed off, he was, he was in a fighting posture. Yes. Okay. But, so, in my state, I don't have to wait to be struck. If I can, if I feel like I'm about to be struck, I can strike first. So, and all the sign, all the signs were you were about to, you were about to go hands on with this guy because you knew he was about to do the same. Right, right. So, at this point, you know, I was not allowed by the use of force matrix to target. You know, I couldn't hit him in his joints. I couldn't hit him, uh, certainly not in his head or or anywhere else. But downward 45 degree angle to his thigh you know the the big thick part of your thigh and and the big thick part of your kind of bicep shoulder area those are the only two areas i could target and i did exactly as trained downward 45 degree angle i struck him four times he didn't even look at where i hit him he didn't 
He didn't wince. He didn't nothing. So back up, during this whole thing, I'm trying to get back up. They can't find me. Now I've struck this individual with a, a metal pipe, and he didn't feel it. And now there's 300 people that hate me in the first place that are really unhappy with me. Are they so chanting? I, are they screaming? Are they yelling? I, they were yelling. They were yelling. Uh, I remember a lot of yelling. Okay. Um, the chanting didn't start quite yet. So they, uh, so he goes to leave again, and I grabbed a hold of him again, and I said, you ain't leaving. And the last thing I ever said on the radio, you know, I queued up, and I said, someone needs to get here now. And you hear him over my mic, like, because I was queued up. You hear him on the tape say, if you hit me one more effing time with that thing, I'm going to whip your ass. And I hit him again. No, no effect. And like lightning, he caught me with a right hook to my left temple. I mean, absolute. I saw it at the very last second, right as he was about to connect. And when he did, I went blind. I don't know if I dropped my stick or, and he picked it up or if he just took it away from me. But I, I had turned my back and kind of started moving toward the crowd, which is insane that, I mean, that was the safest place I had to go. And now he started hitting me with the stick. Uh-huh. His first strike came across the top of my right ear. I remember knowing, you know, I've been struck in the line of duty many times, and people don't understand that, you know, cops, like we were saying earlier, they fight the war at home, and uh, the military goes abroad and fights the war abroad. It, it, is, it is like a war. At times, it certainly is. Yeah. And, uh, well, it was for you on this specific day, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, a lot of other times, you know, it, several times in my career, I started pulling the trigger. You know, I mean, you always hear um, finger outside the trigger guard, right? Right. You know, until you're ready to fire. So always straight, straight trigger finger, straight trigger finger. You know, once you put your finger on that trigger, now we're at like, you know, DEFCON 1. Right. You know? I mean, there have been times in my career, uh, probably about six, that I actually started taking up the trigger slack, getting ready to fire around at somebody. You know, I mean, and it's a daily thing of seeing the inside of people's bodies and all of that, um, though that doesn't have anything to do with what happened on this. No, but you're right. It is. It's a daily it's a daily thing, and that's part of what, for a lot of officers, leads to cumulative PTSD. Certainly. Not, not certainly one event. For many of us, it's compounding of all this trauma, 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 and then you have a couple of violent incidents in there, and one can throw you over the edge. And it, it's, right. it's, it's like a, a teetering of, you, you become unstable after one. I'm going to say unstable. That's not the right word. Because it's not, from, in my opinion, it's not about being mentally ill and psychotic it means the fight or flight syndrome is chronic and constant and the brain never shuts down so when you have that big violent incident a lot of times it pushes many officers like people we all know and love to the point where all of a sudden they've got physical injuries and they've got PTSD and it's overwhelming the combination of the two absolutely it is so uh, he, so he hit me with the.
stick across the top of my right ear, and I, I remember thinking that's not a fist. That was one of the last thoughts I had. And then he struck me across my uh, right lower jaw, and it broke and went sideways in my mouth so that my tongue was over my teeth instead of in the channel between. I lost consciousness in the gutter. At this point, this is kind of being put together by what the detectives found out from the very few witnesses that were even willing to cooperate and fire rescue that had arrived on the scene at some point around this time. The crowd gathered around uh, and they started cheering for him to kill me. They were saying, kill that cracker, hit that cracker again. Um, and he, he beat me uh, with the stick. He kicked me, punched me repeatedly to the point where you know, I had my vest on and then I wore my, my steel trauma plate you know, on the chest area. And then above that, I wore a soft pack. And at the hospital later, the detectives kept asking me, what happened to your chest? Because my chest was all black and blue. And I kept telling them that he didn't do that. You know, in retrospect, I think he did. Because <laughs> before this incident, my chest was not black and blue. And then when I woke up, it was. But Some type of blunt force t- trauma? With his trauma. Yeah. It's a trauma yeah, point. I mean, he... he, he, he He beat me. The firemen, two years later, testified that they felt I I was possibly dead on scene. I was completely unresponsive to any physical stimuli, all of that. And i got to say this. I have to interrupt and interject. This is the classic scenario of the unarmed man. You always hear in the newspapers or in television. Police officer shoots unarmed man. They don't talk about the attack. They don't talk about when that person... The suspect uses your implements, your tools, police tools against you. And ultimately, right. the, the usual play is they go for the, the service weapon. Right. And the scenario and, after that is almost always death. Right, right. And he, when I, when I had my sight, when I was at that point, I was not at the level, a justifiable level of force to use a gun. And then once, I mean, I, I was... I was almost unconscious at the point when a gun would have been justified, but I certainly couldn't see him to fire a shot, you know, knowing where my backstop was. I didn't, you know, certainly don't want to hit anyone in the crowd. You don't want to, you know, gun, you're responsible for it. Right. And it happens in a split second, and that's what Jay was just pointing out. Had you known, obviously, you would have drawn your weapon and, and used deadly force. But if it, you're it, capable. It, right. But what right. I'm saying is it happens so quickly right. that he could not defend himself and ultimately got beaten just inches away from him losing his life. And here's one of the things that I think needs to be said. You know, I've been hit a few times and there's glancing blows around the face. You know, when I was a cop, I got hit many times. But then there's the shots you get where it's, it's almost like they hit the button. You see right. it in boxing all the time. And your mind is telling you to do something, but your, sh- your nerves are short-circuiting. Right. You, your, your hands won't respond. Right. Your, your arms won't respond. Your mind can be saying, I need to get my gun. And you can't physically do it. And, and unfortunately, that's where you, Mike was when this incident happened. Yeah. I didn't even want to talk about this guy. I'm getting all amped up because well, it's, it's a horrendous incident you went through. 
And, um, um, just to finish it off, he, he did end up, he opened my holster, he cocked my gun. There you go. And he tried to get it out. We had just got new holsters. That saved my life. Thank God. Backup finally got there. They got him off me. I went to help. When I woke up, I went to help him fight, and all my blood drained out of my face onto my hands, and I knew I was hurt really bad then. Was this and guy under the influence of, like, uh, maybe LSD or, or uh, meth no. or something like that, or you think he was psychotic, or, or what was it? No, he was, uh, from what we understand, he was completely sober. His defense in court later, because he ended up, he fought off all the officers that arrived and got away. But he was caught around four hours after the incident. And his defense in court was he was what they called post-ictal, which means he had had a seizure. And um, that sometimes people who have had a seizure cannot feel pain, and they perceive anyone coming at them as an attacker. That was his defense. In I've heard a lot of stuff in my day. Let me, let me guess. I've never heard that. He was a career criminal, let me guess. Uh, he has had some prior contact with law enforcement, yes. What happened to him? I, um, I, everybody, we always forget to ask. We get so involved with this story, we never forget to ask about the scumbag. Well, we went to trial two years later. He was convicted of attempted murder on a law enforcement officer with a weapon, second degree, and everything that goes with it. His public defender appealed the case. The appellate court overturned all convictions. Uh, because of a procedural issue. They wanted to retry the case, and I begged them to plead it out. They pled it. He was sentenced to 15, which in my city, in our jurisdiction, that usually means six. Um, so they, they actually pled it to six. Wow. Uh, and he served like seven and a half because he was reoffending in the jail. Had, him, had he another seizure. He was having more seizures in the jail. That's, I think that's what was happening. That's what they were, that was what he was saying. And he was fighting with the COs in the jail and probably other inmates. I'm not sure uh, the exact specifics, but he ended up, he got out in 2015. And I had no idea. I saw on Facebook, I saw. That you were never notified he was released? No, was not notified. And then about a month ago, he was shot and killed by... A drug dealer. Well, let's uh, take a moment of silence here. Yeah. Yeah. And what you know what's what's really weird about it is when I got the call, because they were all like, oh, this is the guy that Mike was, you know, that hurt Mike. Right. And so I, I started getting calls from guys I hadn't heard from in, in nine years. And at first I was happy. And then as the day went on, by the time it was bedtime, I felt really guilty. You know, I felt like I had something to do with it, that I had pushed this guy down the path of criminal behavior and had he not had that encounter with me, you know, and you just start, you have that guilt. I, I don't know why I had it, but one of the guys who had been in a similar situation texted me. He was like, hey, Call me anytime because those feelings are going to change. When I said when I told him I was happy, he's like, "Those feelings are going to change. Call me when they do." And he was absolutely right because he knew I was going to feel guilty. Hmm. But in reality, I mean, I hadn't, I, I had absolutely nothing to do with no. his behavior. He made his choices. 
Yeah, you know, he, he, he made he, he decided to go down certain roads. That was his choice, and that was done well before he came in contact with you. A couple yeah. things I want to get into before we talk about your injuries and recuperation. I suspect that the same thing would have happened if the officer in your shoes was an African American officer. I think I think that. Yes, that probably would have happened. And and I think because I know too many of my brothers I've worked with have been through hell and back and even worse than what I went through uh, with the name calling. I don't I even want to justify it with a response, but I'm saying that you know, I'm glad you survived. I'm glad we got to meet. But there's Me been a big, huge, long road of physical and mental recovery for you. Tell us about the extent of your injuries and what was the surgeries and all that. Well, I was in the hospital for five days. They put two plates and 12 screws in my face. They sent me home and, you know, wired my jaw shut, you know, so my my mom had come to help my wife take care of me, and I ate that boost. It's uh, Like insured, all that stuff? Yeah. Liquid drink, protein. Yeah. Yep. yep. They had to squirt it in my mouth, and I had to, you know, carry scissors wherever I went because, well, I didn't leave the house, but... If I were to vomit, you know, I'd have to cut all the stuff holding my jaw together or else, you know, I could call it aspirating. Yeah, right. The PTSD and nightmare set in pretty quick. It was within two weeks, and it was... The nightmares can be the the most horrific, you know, because you're really there. You know, your body, your mind, even though you're laying in your bed, you're safe, everything's fine, you're really back there. And, you know, you wake up crying, you wake up screaming, you wake up whatever. Um, you, ever, you ever been in a, in a, in a I'm asking Robert this, you ever been like in a, in a tussle when you're arresting someone and you haven't done anything physical in a while, and the next day you're sore? Correct, yeah. yep. You wake up from these nightmares sore. Mm-hmm. The same type of muscle ache is like you were just in a battle, right? And right, that is same feeling. The same that, heart that's rate. constant for a lot of people for a long yep. time. Yeah, I still have them. Which you know that when we get to the dog part, that's part of what he does for me. But I've done all kind of different therapies, you know, neurofeedback and just regular therapists, and of of course. Uh, I can't even list to you the amount of medication that has been prescribed to me over the last nine and a half years. And it, it, I mean, it does help. It does stop some of the panic attacks and it helps on a daily basis. Um, But so far, you know, I'm almost 10 years now, I have not found a complete way to cope with it. I still, I'm very irritable and moody and uh, the nightmares are constant, and you know the the triggers. You know the sudden noises, the loud noises, the uh, crowds, and anything like that. And I have four children, and three of them are below the age of seven. So how do you avoid loud noises? Yeah, you know, uh, and they're all boys, so they like to fight. They like to throw things and drop things, and they make lots of noise. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it's a constant trigger, and it's very, very difficult to deal with. One of the things that we have, a lot of our guests have talked about, is they they have learned a way to get on top of it and manage it. And it sounds like 
you're not there. No. I'm and not. it's still managing your life instead of the other way around. Absolutely correct. And that's what uh, ideally, I, I think, and I'm, I'm drawing upon our prior conversations, ideally I think that's what you want is to be able to get to a point where, hey, I'm not going to be totally free of this, but I don't want it dominating my life and infecting the quality of my life and my family's life. Is that right. correct? Right. And I certainly, you know, the one thing I don't want to fail at in life is being a father. And I don't want my kids to, to look back and say, God, Dad was yelling all the time, or Dad was, you know, always mad, or he was always in a bad mood, or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Mike, um, I can hear in your voice how this has affected you, and, and it still affects you. And how is, but let's flip the switch because you brought about your boys. How has this affected uh, your marriage, your relationship with your kids, the home? Um, I think, you know, I have a wife that is, you know, she's Hispanic, you know, and she's from the Northeast. She's just staunch about family, like ridiculous, almost to a fault, just dedicated to family. I think that that is one of the only reasons why I'm still married. She hasn't given up on you. Right. Uh, because of that and now we have you know i have stayed at the microtel you know or stayed with a friend for a night or two because she was just like i'm done you know i can't take this anymore you know and you're, you're always so depressed you're always so miserable and i i can't take it and i gotta tell you right now that killed my first marriage right that right there which you described it put an end to my marriage because it was more than this person was capable of dealing with. They went through a lot. And when yes. she couldn't do it anymore, she couldn't. Yes. And for a long time, I was very bitter. Now I understand. And that yes. also meant spending many years apart from my children. That, that I mean, that's the part that would, well, no, all of it would really kill yeah. me. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what we're getting at here is that we've got to find a way when I say we, I mean all of us. People, not just you, not just me, not just Robert, but people listening to the audience that are going through this, the ones who are on, on top of it and, and are managing it and finding it life's okay, those who are still struggling, we've got to together find a way to cross over this hump because right. life gets so much better. Yeah, I, I hope so. But it I requires, it requires uncomfortable work, very uncomfortable work, and you know yeah. that. Yes. I can tell you three groups that have really helped me a lot. Well, law enforcement today, you guys, and, got, you know, there's one guy that's part of your staff, I guess. I've never met him face-to-face, -face, but we talk all the time on the phone now, you know. Wounded Officers Initiative, and when, when they had their gala and their, you know, they brought the wounded officers from all over the country together, it was instant family because even the friends that I have now, my closest friends, they, you know, they come from pretty much a privileged background and childhood. Money's never an issue. They have absolutely no understanding. They've never gone into harm's way for someone else, let alone someone that hates you. And when I get with cops like you guys, I don't have to. T I don't have to explain myself. Right. You guys just know. 
So it was like instant family. And then when I met Jesse, Corporal Holton, at Brevard County, where I got my PTSD dog, he was, uh, he, he epitomized brotherhood to me. And I had told my wife for years, I, I was like, I am totally alone. Because most of the guys, only one guy from my old department kept in touch with me all the way through, till now still, only one. And my friends didn't understand. My wife could try to understand, but, you know, she, she could only do so much. And I was like, I'm alone. I have nobody to even talk to. I was like, if I went to a PTSD group, it's almost always for veterans. Right. And I feel like I would be looked at as I didn't, I didn't do enough. Like, they would look at me and be like, what are you talking about? You know, you, you didn't go to Iraq. You didn't go to Afghanistan. You're, you know, get out. Almost. They, I mean, they wouldn't say that to me, but in the back of their mind, that was what they would think. But when I get around other cops and it's like family, I, I just, like, the world opens up for me again. Like, oh, wow, they're... My brothers are still here. You know, I, I have one friend where I live now who is, he was a police officer, uh, well, a deputy sheriff, uh, involved in a, a, a fatal shooting, couldn't live with it, ended up with PTSD, and and uh, I, I just totally lost my train of thought. That's all right. But you become uh, friends. Yeah, yeah, we've become friends, and he's, He's actually helping to keep the training going with my dog because he was a canine handler. And now he has a, his wife owns a business doing canine training and he, he's like the head trainer. And uh, he's absolutely convinced that the thin, the thin blue line is broken. And every time we get together, you know, I wear a bracelet, you know, a blue one that says in memory of our fallen, you know, uh, I, have tattoos and stuff police related and don't get him started on the thin blue line because he feels like you know his brothers turn their backs on him too mike i i want to touch on something before we continue on here uh let's get back to your healing process or okay on your way to your healing process you you met corporal holden with uh brevard county sheriff's office jesse Paws and stripes college what a great outfit Amazing. And, and and you were able to get your service dog. Can you tell us what the dog has done for you to help cope with this uh, and continue to 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 fight the daily struggles that you're fighting? Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, there's been a lot of scientific research already done on the impact a dog has on a human being psychologically anyway, just being present and petting an animal and stuff like that but then having a dog that i because i you know i stay at home i don't go in public a lot he helps me get out of the house he makes me feel safer more comfortable he i know that he's watching me and that if i start to get anxiety and stuff like that he will he will usually act um and lick you know lick my face or jump jump up on me and make sure i'm okay especially with the nightmares. I mean, he sleeps right at the foot of my bed. And I think it was la uh, night before last, I had a a rager, you know, just a bad, bad nightmare where I was in sheer terror. And he woke me up. And it, it's like this 
angel with fur (laughs) (laughs) that comes and, you know, tells you everything's okay. I'm right here. You're in your bed. You're safe. You know, and uh, that is a huge, huge comfort to know that. I mean, my wife, she tries, but she may sleep through it, you know, and he doesn't. If I sneeze and he's on me, you know. And this dog was given uh, so, to you for free. Yes. By Paws and Stripes College. Yes. I was going to, my father became adamant that I needed a PTSD dog, a service dog. And for veterans, they're free. The VA will pay for a service dog. But for cops, uh, there, there's not. I even asked my old department, hey, do you have any connections, you know, where I could look for a good dog? And, nope. You know, they sent me back like a one-liner an email. Nope. So I was like, okay. And I, I just Google, 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 Google. And I come across Paws, for, paws and Stripes. And my dad was prepared to pay like 20 grand to get me a, a service dog. And I find this online and I, I, you know, I immediately called and I spoke to one of the, the chiefs over the jail and he immediately, I think Corporal Holton got a hold of me the same day or the next day. And was he, I mean, he was like, look, I'm a police officer. Well, he's a deputy sheriff. I mean, there's no difference, but he's like, I'm law enforcement. I have PTSD. I understand. I will get you a dog. You will get a dog. So don't even, like, take that worry out of your mind. It's already taken care of. And he treated me like gold. And then when we went down there to get, to get my dog and we met the staff, you know, and the CEOs and it was all hugs and love and, we're here for you. And then, you know, since I had my family with me, we had to, we had to kind of do an expedited training where, you know, normally they spend, you know, a few hours a day with you. And I had to do like two or three eight-hour days. And because I had to get back home, you know, and they had put us up in a hotel. They had put us up on, in a resort in Cocoa Beach the weekend before just so we could rest, let the kids play at the pool, you know. Um, just they a really phenomenal, phenomenal program. And uh, uh, I'm glad they treated him that so nice. Yeah. Uh, and that, there you go. The the brotherhood is not broken because no. uh, Jesse is carrying that torch. I like to think that you guys like you and I are doing the same thing. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm spinning this right now. Uh, that's where I was going with this. Um, I got I to gotta say this, Mike. Uh, you know I've been bugging you lately, um, and, and hopefully this is okay to bring up. I'm worried about you. Um, yeah. Um, it's been 10 years. I'm trying to find things for you to do. I, I check in with you as much as I can, and maybe and I still feel, like you, guilty that, hey, I missed the day. I didn't text Mike or I didn't uh, call Mike. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out ways to get you involved to give you some worth because you're, you're no longer, in your mind, a part of the Brotherhood. So we, you know, we have you maybe writing some articles for LET. You're helping out with LET. We got you on the radio today. And maybe we can work on getting him down here physically into South Florida. <laughs> hey, that's just a subtle hint. <laughs> if my wife had her way. I know, I've heard. <laughs> yes, if I had my way, you'd be a neighbor. Oh, I was 
But I, I want to get back on this topic because it does concern me, Mike. You know, we talk. I just want you to come on this radio somehow and, and, and tell me that you're never going to give up and you're going to continue the fight. And uh, Jay and I are always here for you. You know that. And uh, anybody else that's listening that wants to reach out to Mike, just contact, contact law enforcement us. today. But I just wanted to go on the air to say that to you, to know that we're, we got your back. You're still part of the family. And uh, we're going to make sure somehow, some way that we, we get you over this hump. I, I mean, I, there are no words to express my gratitude um, and, and the comforting feeling that that gives me. You know, I love you guys. And, you know, I, I do my best. Uh, and um, I'm going to continue to do my best. But it's with support from guys like you, you know, hey, let, even, to, hey, let's go get a steak, you know, and sit down and talk. That, that's a, it's a great night for me, you know. And, and you guys, when I was in South Florida and I saw you, that's what we did. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was jazzed when I came back home. You know, I, I was so excited that I met the two of you and uh, the insights that you have. You know, I told, I told Jay that, you know, when a guy is a plumber for 40 years, and you're a new guy, and you ask him, you know, any question, and you're, you're an aspiring plumber, there's a reason why he's been a plumber for 40 years. He's good at it. He knows what he's doing. He knows the ins and outs of plumbing. And, I mean, you guys are just a little older than me. And Thank you very much. I'd say a lot. <laughs> a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason why you guys have survived it, and there's a lot for younger guys to learn from and you know you had a lot of wisdom to give me that night and i've tried to keep it in mind you know and, and let's spin that because i know one of the things that you have expressed to me that you really want to do is you want to go ahead into police academies around the united states and see and tell them your story and share your experiences with them and so if there's anybody that listening that feels uh that it would be beneficial for the recruits that in, in, in any academy class to hear Mike speak. That's something that he's been trying to reach out to different police academies uh, to achieve that goal. I have. I have. And I want them to know that it's real. You know, when you put the badge on and you walk out your door, you are now a target. And these, these kind of things, they happen every day. They don't get, I mean, my incident really didn't even get covered by the media. So the public really doesn't know. And these cops, you know, they go through their recovery process and the process is with their department, which can be daunting. Yeah, those are, um, those are really, really difficult, just trying to get retired in some agencies with a oh, combination yeah. of two. They make it yeah. really difficult. In some states, it's not possible. They, they wind up getting fired. Right. Right, and that's that's just terrible. I mean, th there's no bigger travesty than something like that. It took me a year, you know, the, the union provided an attorney, and it took a year of fighting, and, you know, the, the city's attorney called me a malingerer, and 
an alcoholic and they tried to put me in in rehab in, in the same place that I took people under under the Marsh, Marshman Act, uh-huh. which is basically they're too intoxicated and, you know, they may be... Doing that where you were police is not a good idea. Going out of town somewhere else has a specialty program for law enforcement with people who are experiencing first responder trauma is a totally different situation. Right. And that's where a lot of people like you and me wind up getting over the hump. Yeah. And because our first response, and I I know a bit about your story, but our first response is that we isolate. Mm Mm-hmm. We withdraw from other people because we don't feel they understand us and we don't understand them and I'm also afraid I'm going to be irritable with them and everything else. And and that res- that applies to other police. And it also winds up applying to our spouses and family members. We withdraw. And yeah. it's the worst thing in the world we can do because we're wind up being stuck with ourselves and our thoughts. And the thoughts are the problem. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to work on getting you down here next time you're in uh, with us. You're going to be in-studio guest. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. All right. I, I, anything to get to get the word out to people about what cops go through and to get the word out to cops that there are other guys out there and that, that are still family, still on the line, and, and want nothing more than to, to be there for them in their time of need. Sounds like a plan to me, brother. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much, and keep up the good work. Keep fighting, Mike. And for just calling this this guy, Mike, and, uh, you know, I, I'm so proud of him for having the balls to come on and right. talk This about is a it. tough situation for it's me tough. and you because we know Mike, and uh, it's a First tough, of all, it's tough a, speaking to him like this. That's a nice guy, and I, I, I'm not kidding when I said I would love to have him as a neighbor. He, Mike's an awesome guy. He just, uh, you know, we, he has... It's what a he, tough hand he's been dealt. Right. What he's been through is, uh, you know, not many people can relate to it, and he feels isolated and all alone. But here's the thing. The, the, the studies are showing that about 30 to 35% of, of modern law enforcement officers in the United States are walking around with some degree of PTSD. Right. Whether it be severe or moderate or somewhere in between or fluctuates back and forth. Then if you take the combat veterans and that, that are also in law enforcement that have done a couple tours over here and been through some you know, stuff over there and right. then back here, th- that population, the number increases even more. You know, And when we get together, no one understands us like we do. Right. Well, I just really, really hope that Mike finds some peace and some help, and uh, yeah. I, and you know we'll we'll do what we can to make sure that he gets it. Yeah. And, and by the way, if you're one of those people that's going through this and and you're pondering that intolerable choice because life is unbearable, you know, reach out and talk to somebody. Find someone who's qualified, who knows trauma, who knows first responders and what that's all about, and go talk to them. Even if your body inside is telling you, your mind's telling you, I don't want to do it, do it. Reach out to us. If you can't find somebody, we will find somebody to help you. I don't sound like a threat. Is it a threat? If you can't find someone, we'll find someone it, for it's, you. No, it's like a rally cry. <laughs> it's a rally cry, not a threat. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. Sorry if I came around. Let, wait, no, let me holster just, my I'm gun. Kidding. I'm holstering my gun. I'm kidding.
Man, also a big shout out to uh, Corporal Jesse Holton and the folks at Brevard County Sheriff's Office, Paws and Stripes College. Uh, he was a guest on a previous edition of the show, and uh, we got a good chance to go meet them and see their facilities. And they're doing phenomenal things, and they're placing PTSD dogs with veterans and first responders for free, and with children and people with special needs for free. And these are sheltered dogs they're doing it with. So check out Paws and Stripes College. And I understand that after all these months we've been doing this, you finally have your own signature sign-off. Well, it's not mine. I, I got to give a shout-out to Eric Reynolds, uh, a previous guest on the show, uh, Boynton Beach, Florida police officer. Uh, uh, he gave me this one that he loved. I, I kind of like it. I'll throw it out there. Well, let's, let's, let's set the whole scenario up. Go I usually go with, you know, on behalf of so-and-so, law enforcement today, I'm John J. Wiley. Then I bang, I hit him with a bang, I'm done. So you got to come up with, the, you know, hey, this is Robert Greenberg, CEO of law enforcement today. Yeah, it's not Police captain. And until next time. Stay ready so you do not have to get ready. That's it. That's it. We got to work on the delivery. I think yeah. it's a powerful line. Well, I'm still, you know, it's a, it's a lot of words for me to remember here, Jay. It's like wearing brand new leather shoes. No, you got no, to break them in a little bit. Yeah, it's, I'm not as professional as you on the air. Well, I've but. been saying this for a long time. I've been saying it on radio for 15 years. And, so. it, and it shows. You're so. an experienced... You know, come ride in the police car with me these days, handle our little computers and all that, and I bet you'll feel as uncomfortable. I'm sure I will. I think we're done. Can I do my sign-off now? Let's do Let's it. Let's do yours one more time. Stay ready so you do not have to get ready. And this is John J. Wally. Until next time, see ya. Yeah.